Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. In this episode, we take a look at what engineers might be doing in the year 2040. And since we're not trained prognosticators, we hope you'll forgive us for not having vision that's 2020. As we converse about the future of engineering, you'll find that we cover Power Rangers, Economic Dangers, and Paradigm Changers. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 134, 2040, July 25th, 2017. So, Adam, what do you think you'll be doing in 10 years? Well, if I have my way, um, retired. Retired? In 10 years? Well, th- there's uh, some, some very strategic uh, lottery <laughs> okay. winnings in the middle of that. <laughs> I, I was going to say they must have one heck of a pension plan where you work. <laughs> I'm not even sure I'm eligible to draw the pension in 10 years. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> nah, it, it probably... You know, continuing to continuing to work, hoping to be a uh, um, what we call it middle manager, lower level manager, depending on how you want to define those, right? Um, but yeah, I don't see any major changes in the next ten years. Okay, except hopefully a couple of raises. Oh, that would be good. That'd be excellent. Yeah. So, is there sort of a a standard trajectory for uh, engineers in in uh, in your area in your field? Um, I don't know about my field in my agency there, there's kind of a, a hierarchical tree. You've got your, your senior engineers, which are, you know, like I am, you know, your most junior licensed engineers. Well, and I step back, you got your EITs Mm -hmm. first. Um, but you, you've got a lot of people at that level and then you've got, you know, each group supervised by. A slightly higher level engineer, and then that groups those groups supervised by another slightly higher level engineer, and um, as you work your way up, so um, yeah, I, I'd say hopefully, depending if uh, a cup, depending on some retirements, then you know, moving up into one of the one or two of those steps. Oh, nice. Yeah, and pay raises to go with them. <laughs> and pay raises, of course. <laughs> That'd be right. Well, and so uh, I think we've got Carmen listening in on here are you there carmen uh you know i'm nodding off in between sentences but whatever i'm i'm physically here <laughs> well i seem to recall you having an early retirement plan as well oh hell yeah i'll be on my second million in 10 years <laughs> at least and uh yeah well excellent i i hope that you'll remember your friend from the podcast when uh, when you're retired with those millions oh, of course yeah yeah <laughs> Well, the uh, the engineering profession continues to change. We were just talking uh, before the uh, the podcast, and I was I really wasn't thinking about it that we've been doing this. Uh, the the group, the four of us, have been doing this for four years now, uh, and time just keeps you know passing right along. And so the the you know the role of an engineer changes. We've talked in previous episodes about uh, uh, how the role of engineers have changed over the years, and and the uh, duties of the engineer have changed over. Uh, over time. And so we thought we'd talk in this episode about what we might forecast the role of engineering would look like in 
2040. Uh, and so that seems initially to be a long way away. Uh, but uh, we think about it, that is just 23 years out. And uh, so, you know, most engineering careers, if you start in your 20s and you retire somewhere in your late 50s, early 60s, you're going to have a 35 to 45 year career and you will easily, uh, you know, your career will span much more than those 23 years. So we thought we'd take a look at, at what engineering might look like 23 years from now and uh, see if that gave us any any insights. Uh, before we got into that, the, the one thing I wanted to note, though, is that uh, I think that sometimes when people project into the future, uh, they're either too utopian, everything is going to be just grand and jolly, uh, or they're too dystopian, uh, things are going to be horrible. And, uh, I, you know, probably the truth is, is somewhere in between. Uh, but the, the one constant that I figured out uh, is that human behavior is human behavior. <laughs> and no matter how much technology uh, you have in place, uh, people will find a way to uh, make themselves known, uh, to express their identity, to exercise power, to flaunt their money if they have it. So uh, that seems to be unchanged, that uh, uh, human behavior is what it is. Oh, yeah. It's definitely not going to be uh, doom and gloom, but we're not also going to have flying cars either. <laughs> Oh, we might have flying cars in 23 years. No, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> then you just got to build sky roads. I would say, uh, you know, flying cars, self-driving cars, all that, that's allowed to happen in about 30 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, after you've retired, right? Yes. If, if the uh, lottery plan doesn't work out. Right. Yeah, I, I seem to recall there was a uh, plane that uh, landed in, I think it was California, on one of the highways. They lost power and, and uh, crashed on the interstate, uh, and that seemed to cause quite a bit of trouble. So I can see where you might uh, not so much like the flying car idea. <laughs> but I can make the most important uh, prediction based oh. on uh, you know what I know. Okay. And we can wrap this up in under 10 minutes if you guys want. Well, if you have a great insight, please share. Oh, this is a mic dropping thing right here. So 23 years ago in 1994, uh, we were in the middle of the first season of the Power Rangers TV show. And uh, <laughs> now in 2017, we had the Power Rangers movie reboot that yeah. has restarted the franchise. So in 2040, we are due for another cycle go round of the Power Rangers. Wow. So I'll be celebrating my retirement with another reboot of the Power Rangers. <laughs> So only one more reboot, or are we looking at more than one reboot? Well, I mean, yeah, in that 23 years, they did how many different versions of the Power Rangers, but I'm saying, like, the official reboot of the series happened after 23 years. Oh. So. Right. And and was this an important part of your childhood? It absolutely was. It shaped me into the man I was today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I started kicking everything. I still have my Saba sword. It's in my parents' basement. <laughs> Right, and is there is there any uh, engineering insight that you gathered from the Power Rangers? Uh, apparently, modularity is the key because you could just reconfigure the Zords any which way you wanted. I don't know how that worked. Ah, well, that's that's what we call movie magic. Mm-hmm. There was all sorts of shared interfaces and standards, and yeah, ugh, I don't know. I don't know who did all that, but apparently, those space aliens are better than we are. Right. Well, they've had a few more years or a little more advanced technology to get there than we've had. I guess. I mean, the, the Zords were thousands of years old, according to legend. 
in both of them. So they they hit their peak early. I, I guess it's a sign of of my age that I've never watched a Power Rangers episode. Mm. I was all about that growing up. <laughs> now I'm right. sure we have some fans and some listeners who could school me on all the lore and you know every possible different season, but. You know, I, I did like jump kick my brothers across the living room and stuff after watching it. So I'm, I'm right there with them. Super fan level. <laughs> right. Yep. Uh, been there. Of course. Um, jump kicking your brothers is like a time honor tradition. Yeah. Yeah. And that proceeded to be followed by um, uh, discipline. <laughs> oh, so you had to do it properly when like you were babysitting. And then you just gave them ice cream and said, don't tell mom. Sorry about that. <laughs> Oh, I never had that opportunity. My my one brother is not that much different in age than me that I never really was just babysitting. Oh, see, I'm not quite the mastermind I let myself, uh, you know, I portray on this podcast. I got yelled at plenty of times, but every now and then I had a good idea. Yeah, only beat up your younger siblings when parents aren't around. Exactly. <laughs> so, Jeff, clearly we're going to be useless for this uh, engineering in 1994 type deal. Right. Right. Okay. Well, so if, if we look back 23 years ago, so the, the tendency is, as we look forward, we always see in a straight path. Uh, and we, so we sort of miss the curves that, that, uh, time throws into our, you know, into our journey. And so, uh, we thought, I thought we'd look back at what engineering was like in 1994, 23 years ago. And so, you know, the job of the engineer was not, radically different. You know, we're coming into work every day, trying to make things better, uh, trying to improve designs, trying to improve manufacturing. Uh, but the tools were certainly different. Uh, we did not have any smartphones. Uh, you could certainly get mobile phones. We had, uh, you know, when they first came out, there were the big honking things. If you see like the, uh, what is it? Wall street, one of the early movies, you know, these things were like, you were, you know, it was like you're holding a, a huge, uh, a suitcase up to your ear. Uh, and then we had the bag phones and the phones started to shrink. So we had mobile phones, but we didn't have, there were no smartphones. Uh, the iPhone didn't come until 2007. So we were many years away from, uh, having that. So you were more productive because you couldn't browse Reddit and stuff at work. Well, that's absolutely true. You couldn't browse Reddit there. You know, when you wanted to kill time, you had to go either find someone else to kill time with and talk, uh, or you had to go out, you know, find a place in the back of the building where nobody would find you and sleep. <laughs> there was, <laughs> there was, there, you know, there was no, uh, there were no, I'm trying to think. I don't remember any laptops at that time. Uh, let me think. Not let me anything think. worthwhile. That wasn't no, 12 no, there, pounds. Th- okay. There were laptops in 94 because they came in the late, uh, in the very early 90s. There were a few laptops, not very powerful, but, but there were some laptops. Uh, so I guess you could go play solitaire in the back corner of the building if you, really sneaky, but you didn't have internet connection. Uh, I mean, you could get on, uh, 1994 is my recollection was about the time that, that private individuals as opposed to big companies could get, uh, uh, domains could register domains. And so that it was somewhere in that 94 re, uh, range where, you know, I registered my first, uh, web uh, domain and, and uh, was playing, you know, building a website and thought that was oh so cool and, you know, could set up email from something other. Before then, if you wanted email, it had to be AOL or CompuServe uh, or something like that. Uh, you couldn't have, you know, mail at your own domain. Such a primitive time. 
you know, this is interesting. That is a time before Windows 95. Yep. That's right. Crazy. <laughs> uh, and, and so, for instance, I remember from uh, going out on my own, I, I went out on my own in that year, which is why it was sort of, you know, memorable to me, uh, start my own business. And so mostly I had to rely on paper catalogs. There was no, you know, no wide internet. Uh, and for the companies that were advanced and, and doing things, I could, uh, get online and no, I had to call them and ask what the right address was. And they had to give me the right address to FTP into their site. I couldn't get there through the web interface. They had to give me access to their FTP site and I could FTP in and download some uh, spec sheets. Uh, but that was not all companies. That was only a few, you know, rare companies. And mostly I had to rely on uh, paper catalogs and, you know, my office full of bookshelves of, of nothing but catalogs. Well, those sound like awfully dark days. No Google search. Right. Well, so, it, but you, we didn't know any different, right? You did with what you could. You were as productive as you could be with that. And, and you didn't, didn't know the difference. Yeah. So when you started your new job, you know, you just came in and there's a, you know, a pad of paper, a pencil and a phone and you just had to get to work. There's no excuses like, oh, my laptop didn't come in yet. Right. So uh, if you were uh, – so previous to that, I had worked as a a design engineer. And so if you're a design engineer, you had a uh, a computer at your desk. But But a lot of engineers had no computers at their desk. If you weren't doing design work – there was no reason for you to have a computer there. There, the you know in the in the late eighties, early nineties, we started to get more email. So some uh, some people had uh, computers there for e- checking email, but uh, not many. You know, before I became you know before I moved into the design engineering job, I ha- I did not have a computer on my desk. Did you ever have to deal with the days of the shared CAD workstation? Oh we yes, had to sign out time. That was over by ninety four, right? Uh, for the most part, for the most part. So when I was, um, see, let me go back. This was 84, 84 ish, uh, 10 years prior to that, the colleague that was working across the aisle from me was doing uh finite element analysis and he was dialing in, uh, to a remote computer and, you know, had to sign in for time. And so he had particular hours during the day that he could do that. But for the most part, I mean, all the CAD work I did, we were doing it on our on our our, our own workstations, and so uh, we weren't having to sign up for remote computing time. Um, and, and along the lines of the computer stuff, uh, you mentioned uh, that uh, Windows ninety five had not been released, but but Linux was only three years old at that point, right? It wasn't widely known. Uh, it was still still sort of a uh, thought about what what might be. And if you, you know, personal computers were out by then, uh, but uh, hard drive space was extremely expensive. Uh, if you went and tried to buy hard drive space in 1993, a year before, uh, it was $2,000 per gigabyte. Damn. So your little, you know, your little 16 gigabyte flash drive that you carry around with you in your pocket $32,000. That's a lot of $1,000. <laughs> Isn't it, though? 
It's like many months of salary. <laughs> yeah. By, by 1994, it was down a little bit. It was down to, uh, what is the number here? I found a website that had this on it. $950 per gigabyte in September of 94. Now, I remember after 94, uh, several years after, the first uh, computer my family bought, I mean, it wasn't our first computer, but the first one we actually bought, we got four gigabytes, and it was like, this is never, we're never going to run out of space on this. Yeah. And it was so big, it had to be two partitions, because the computer couldn't handle a single four gigabyte partition. And it was just like an enormous amount of space, you're never going to use it all. Right. And we're going to produce, what, a couple of gigabytes today? Yes. I could probably do that if I had to. <laughs> yeah, we will, uh, between the three of us, we will certainly generate that much. Yeah. So even though it was almost $1,000, it was a whole lot of space back then. Yes. Yeah, and I'm trying to remember, we, you know, at that time when we were passing information around, we were using, when we did use computers, we were passing around information on the uh, floppy drives. Uh, and those were, what, 300 kilobytes? I want to say per disk. You know, you'd, you know, at some point you started getting these stacks of disks, uh, in order to, to, uh, to produce much. But I remember those days and I, I, I look at my, you know, I pick up my smartphone, uh, today and I download a program and it says I'm downloading, you know, 70 megabytes. It's like 70 megabytes. We used to get by on, you know, with kilobytes. Um, uh, so, yeah, at that point, the 144 meg floppy was out. Yeah. So, and, and for all those kids who don't know what a floppy is, you know that save icon? There was a thing that you stuck in a computer that looked like that save icon <laughs> <laughs> that you could put 1.44 megabytes of data on. I know right. we have a couple of younger listeners, it seems. Yep. Yeah. Well, and when you wanted to update, right, you wanted to update the operating system. You had to have a big stack of those to, to do it. There was no, uh, for a while, there was no internet to uh, download it over. Or, or you download it and convert it to the floppies and then install on that. It was, it was a little tough. That was before, um, I think that was before CD drives. If not, it wasn't long before or long after. Right. So we can see that uh, things were very different in 1994 technology-wise. Uh, that, that, uh, you know, we've got lots of things, uh, changing in, in the world of, uh, computing, especially. Uh, and so we thought we'd talk about, you know, various factors and how they might contribute to, uh, uh, to engineering in 2040. Uh, before we get into that, I, I will mention that, uh, there was a report put out in, I think it was 2004, in the early 2000s, called the Engineer of 2020. Uh, and that idea was they wanted to talk about what uh, uh, what the next generation of engineers needed to be able to do, and in particular, they seemed to come up with the you know what they call the grand challenges uh, for uh, for engineering. What were those grand challenges? Were they moonshots for engineers? Yeah, that was the uh, that was the basic idea. I think when they first uh, released them, there were fourteen. I don't know if they've changed them, but. Uh, uh, as I as I see them on the uh, National Academy for Engineering website, they've got advanced personalized learning, make solar energy economical, enhance virtual reality, reverse engineer the brain, engineer better medicines, advance health informatics, restore and improve urban infrastructure, 
That's a good one. Secure cyber. Secure. <laughs> Says a civil engineer. <laughs> I never said I'm not self-serving. Uh, okay. Right. All right. Uh, secure cyberspace. Provide access to clean water. Provide energy from fusion. Hmm. I know they didn't specify cold fusion. Uh, prevent nuclear terror. Manage the nitrogen cycle. Develop carbon sequestration methods and engineer the tools of scientific discovery. So I have no idea who the people were that came up with this. I'm sure they were very talented, insightful, wise people. Uh, but there you go. There are the, uh, the 14 grand challenges for engineering is put forth by the National Academy of Engineering. Well, we're on our way with some of those. I don't know how far we've come with fusion. That's not really my area, but <laughs> just some casual reading. I know stuff like carbon sequestration is uh, underway. Uh-huh. I think it was maybe Switzerland. I'd have to dig up the article. It was on Ars Technica like a week or two ago. Mm -hmm. And it's this thing. It's like the size of a shipping container, give or take. But you stick it on like a mountaintop and it pulls carbon out of the air. Hmm. And they, they launched the first one. And, you know, one, you know, it, some amount of tons of CO2 gets pulled from the air. But it's a, a drop in the bucket. And the idea would be to get a whole network of these things going. Mm-hmm. Seems like I've yeah every other day you can find some article about some some way people have to pull carbon out of the air, right? CO two, anyways. I've got one good way: trees. <laughs> I thought that only works up to a point, though. And then like, no, th th there's <sighs> never mind. I'm gonna get in over my head talking about things <laughs> I don't understand. Right. So as I look at that list, I, I mean that sounds wonderful. I mean these are all wonderful things, but you know that sounds like research type engineering to me you know most engineers take a job in some sort of you know manufacturing plant or we're building a better car we're building a better widget uh we're doing you know quality analysis on on production uh and so something like you know engineer better medicines yeah if you happen to be in the pharmaceutical <laughs> industry maybe you can make a contribution there but for the average engineer are they going to be able to do something to say engineer better medicines or advance health informatics yeah, sure. I'll take credit for that. You know, <laughs> I work on power supplies for servers now. So if you're doing it on a big compute cluster or supercomputer, there's a chance I may be powering it. So you're welcome. I'll be happy to share the Nobel Prize. <laughs> so did you actually have a chance to read any of the actual, um, um, I'm going to say, report or book? I pulled it up this, uh, this past weekend, uh, but did not read it. I read it. I read portions of it when it was released, you know. Back in the, the early 2000s. Okay. Well, so I, I took a chance to skim it a little bit. Um, not that I read the whole thing, but they did talk about, you know, in a lot of those, um, like the, I think I heard three civil engineering ones in, in your list. Mm -hmm. um, they're political. They're money. They're not technical challenges, really. I mean, there are definitely technical aspects to those challenges, um, like the, the urban, um, um, you know, dealing with urban infrastructure, uh, clean water. Th these are definitely within the realm of, of our technical abilities. Nobody wants to pay for it. So in the report, do they say that, that, that these are political challenges, not technical challenges? Um, I didn't see that specifically, but they had an entire, actually a couple of sections about the outside influences, like the political influences. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, acknowledging that oftentimes the engineer doesn't, really have control over these sorts of things. Well, that's for damn sure. Uh, yeah. 
Hmm. So I did also notice that they seem to have some pretty fancy, as, as most future predictions tend to be, they're generally pretty fanciful about how things are going to be in a relatively short period of time. Mm-hmm. So um, they were, I, I, one section I read, they had a couple of like discussions, um, like stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of glazed over, I was reading like why this was, but, uh, you know, like they, they talked about for biology, biotech, um, kind of the story of this person going through their day and they've got like an internal alarm clock and brain to things interfaces and was very upset about how there was this mandate that, uh, only human beings could drive cars and she actually had to push buttons to drive her car. Mm-hmm. Couldn't just like think in the car, go where it needs to go or the car couldn't just take her where it needed to be. Right. We're, we're a little bit, uh, I don't think we're going to hit that by 2020. Sorry. <laughs> right. But, but you, you know, back in 2004, maybe that seemed, you know, 16 years seemed like enough time. Yeah. We'll be, we'll be five years away from that up until the moment we aren't. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Oh, I love the day I can download a, um, a technical manual into my head. That'd be awesome. Right. Well, so let's start there. Uh, we look forward to 2040. So we, you know, we look back towards 1994, which was 23 years ago. Let's look forward now 23 years in the future. And, you know, there's lots of stuff going on with biological advancements and, and, uh, you know, hooking the brain in. It, it doesn't seem unreasonable to me that, that maybe we start getting towards uh, uh, the matrix type thing where we can plug into the internet. Uh, and so all the information from Google is just a thought away. We don't have to type anything. We don't have to say anything. We just think it, boom, the information is there. Do you think that'd be a good thing? Uh, I still don't think it's going to get people to read the data sheet, but yeah, sure. <laughs> why not? <laughs> well, they won't need to read it because it'll be in their head. This doesn't mean they're going to access the information in their head. No, no, but they'll already know the answer, and it's obviously not. It's obviously not in the data sheet. I still get plenty of questions that uh, could be answered just by looking at page one of the data sheet. So some things will never change. <laughs> so I can see where people would be uh, again more productive, right? If you if you are trained in the art of engineering and and you know what information you're looking for, that. Those numbers, those values uh, come together a lot quicker. And maybe maybe we get there without plugging in. Maybe it doesn't take an actual cable. Maybe we've, we've found a Bluetooth for the brain by that point, and so you can do it wirelessly. Oh, I'm sure it'll be wireless. Maybe you need an implant, but no, I can't imagine going and taking like a um, – by then it'll be probably like a Cat 11 cable and clicking it into your head. Yeah. No, why would you do that? Although wired is always going to be better than wireless. I'm putting that down. <laughs> well, maybe you want a mil spec connector so you get a you know a good uh, tight uh, uh, you know screw on uh, connector there so that when you accidentally forget and walk try to walk out of the room while you're still connected you don't strip everything out of your the back of your head. That would be good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go so far as to say productivity may increase as we see it now, but overall may stay the same as in, you know, tasks that may take us two or three or, you know, four weeks to complete, maybe get done in a week's time. But that just means the projects are going to get more technical. So you just have to do more in the same amount of time. Yeah. And yeah, you may be able to snap together something quick compared to what we do today, but 
you, then you have 500 other things on your list then that get added. Right. So I, I, I think there's no doubt that as, as we become, as engineers, as individual engineers, we become more productive, more will be expected of us. Now, we may, be, we may be paid better relative to the general population as we become more productive in that manner, and maybe fewer people are able to become engineers. But, uh, yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that more will be expected of the engineer. Yeah. And I mean, that was true even back in the, you know, 94 and stuff too, trying to bridge the gap here over 40 years instead of just 20. Mm-hmm. Um, where, well, I guess it'd be a little more than, well, whatever, how many years it is. Don't do math on the air. <laughs> <Right>. Um, <laughs> and the Jim Williams books I like to bring up, you know, pretty much every other episode, it seems. Um, in one of the chapters written by, uh, an apps engineer from some IC company, you know, they were talking and they said, you know, you just have to be a good communicator if you're in the semiconductor industry because, you know, for every question you get by someone who's an expert in your field, you also get, uh, you know, plenty of questions from people who aren't experts. And what seems trivial to you is holding up their show and they don't have time to become an expert because they have a, you know, 500 line item uh, checklist to get done in order to get this product out the door. And there's just not time to learn all those things. Right. So I can only imagine how much that's going to hold true in the future where you're responsible for the, you know, your cold fusion hyperspace drive and the, uh, you know, adapter card for the MP3 player of your spaceship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and so we have, uh, I think sort of tied into that with all this computing power is that, uh, I think we've talked previously about ubiquitous computing that, that I think that by that point in time, we won't have computers per se. Everything will be tied to the network, right? Our, our TVs and, uh, you know, our appliances will certainly be tied to the network. But I expect lots of, you know, our light bulbs and everything else is tied in. And so, uh, we don't have to go type on the keyboard. We, we say, hey, hello, Siri. Hello, Cortana. Hello, Alexa, whichever, you know, computer interface we prefer. And there may be dozens of them by then. And then we tap into sort of the, the global computing power where all this computing power is distributed to places, you know, like Amazon, you know, just sort of ubiquitous computing. We don't, there's, there's no really limitations uh, to what we can do uh, computing wise. Uh, so I, again, I think that uh, provides a lot of uh, area for productivity improvements. I will argue IT will still be the limitation to computing power and they will decide to change things to make it more secure and break everything on a regular basis. Well, I, I, I think there's no doubt the, that we, you know, that is an issue in that the internet was never intended for secure computing. You know, it was intended uh, for communication and uh, for easy sharing. And it, there weren't that many people on the internet. You, you knew who these people were. You didn't worry about them being bad actors. And so the internet was just never designed to have this high level of security that we want on everything uh, these days, because as you can tell by the news, it seems like everybody's getting hacked, you know, heck the, the, uh, the NSA was hacked. If they're getting hacked, then you, you know, <laughs> what, what hope do the rest of our small, you know, organizations have for, for keeping ourselves safe? And so I, what I wonder is along the word, uh, along the lines of IT, if it isn't just that we get so tied down by security issues that we're not able to do some of these neat things that the internet would otherwise allow us to do. Yeah. The internet's definitely a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. So with this uh, ubiquitous computing and everything, Jeff, what do you think, I mean, 
Yeah, 2040 is far away, but not that far away. So I'm not going to say we're going to be totally replaced, but did the machines come for our job too? Do we just have someone like Adam who maybe goes over some road plans that were totally designed by a computer and goes, yeah, it looks all right, and he's just the final sign-off? Or are we uh, you know, just, just putting some inputs into the machine saying this is the road we need or this is the – uh, you know, machine tool that's got to be designed or the IC we're looking for and just use whatever the, the machine spits out for us. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, we've got several things going on. We've got the, the computing power. We have, you know, big data. We can access much more data and process it more, much more quickly than we could in past years. Uh, the sort of artificial intelligence and machine learning is coming along. And so as long as programmers are writing programs there are always edge cases that that cause problems and and there's a need for some expert to come in and make sure that uh, even if you're you know even if you're feeding the data into the computer and saying hey i want to build this bridge i want to build this structure i want to you know design this uh this artificial limb here you know here are the patient parameters here are the here are the structure parameters uh let the computer do its work then we still want somebody with knowledge of, of, of the engineering profession to take a look at it and say, yeah, I sign off on that. That looks okay. There's nothing that worries me there. Or if there is something that worries me, we'll, we'll take a look at it. But we keep, you know, we keep going deeper, deeper into, uh, the, the neural networks, which are wonderful. And so you, in fact, there was a episode on 60 minutes, I think a week or two back where they were talking about, uh, IBM's Watson project. Uh, and so where Watson is, you know, uh, played Jeopardy and won on Jeopardy and is now helping with, with, uh, cancer, uh, treatments and is now, you know, being sold by IBM to various companies to, to help them with their businesses. And so, you know, in a regular program, you have an algorithm where you're writing, you know, step A, step B, step C. In a neural network, uh, which many of these, these artificial intelligence systems use, you're, you're giving weightings for various inputs. And so after a while, it starts to learn through these weightings. But if you, but we as humans then to go back later, my understanding, I'm not an expert in this. We can't, we can't always decipher what that means. Yes, we created a system that can learn, but we can't, we can't back out that information and say, well, it's this information and that information that's, that's causing us to, uh, to come to this decision. So long story, not so short. At the point that, there's neural networking that does that analyzes traffic plans or analyzes machine design or analyzes uh, power circuits. What do they need us for? That's what I'm saying. Am I going to be forced <laughs> into retirement? I want to retire in my own terms. I think that that you know the, these things come over time and and it will take a while to get there. Uh, so I'm not sure we'll be there in 2040, but we could be well on our way. We'll certainly be there in 2400. Uh, so I, I don't know exactly <laughs> what the, the time uh, frame is, but yeah, it's a, it's a interesting thought and, and it'll be, you know, the engineers, right? The, the pro computer programmers and the engineers that do it, even if it does put us out of work because it's a great challenge, right? We can't, oftentimes we can't, we can't step, uh, stop ourselves. We get uh, presented with a great challenge and now we have to do it to see if we can do it. Well, as long as it's after about 2060, because then I'm sure I'll be retired, we're okay. 
That's a terrible way of thinking. <laughs> so now we got us into the current mess we're in now, is as long as I get mine, who cares? I'm going to design the AI to be just slightly stupid. There'll be some random errors <laughs> thrown in there on purpose. Well, yes, yeah, keep your job. Yeah, yeah. So actually, let's take that back. Unless they figure out some sort of like human welfare where because the computers are so good, the humans don't have to do anything and they just kind of get to hang out and do whatever they want. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Right. We'll see. I don't think it will turn into a nation of philosopher kings, but <laughs> I can hope. Yeah. Um, well, so along those lines, you know, the other thing that's coming so that the computing power is, is sort of handling the abstract processing. Uh, but we've got this entire robotics that's coming along. Uh, and so we've got, you know, more and more industrial robots. And you look at any of the car production lines these days, and a lot of that's car- uh, carried out by uh, robots, certainly the, the, the welding and the painting and the areas that, that back in 1994, uh, there were some robotics going on at that po- uh, point in time, but certainly not to the extent it is today. Uh, and, and even beyond that, there's now uh, personal robots there's a lot of work to develop uh, robots that could help, especially uh, the elderly, uh, since since uh, the the population, the world population seem, seems to, well, at least in a lot of the developed nations, the the population is aging, and so uh, they're looking for help there. And there's, you know, once you get beyond the normal robot thing, there's lots of little mechanisms and and uh, devices that are computerized, and I guess we could call those sort of mini robots. Uh, and so again, we have the problem with well, if the if the uh, AI computers are displacing engineers. These robots are going to be displacing a lot of people doing other things. You know, we've talked uh, previously about uh, automated trucks. Autonomous trucks are going to displace the drivers, and that will displace the, you know, uh, the wait staff that works at the local restaurant as well as the owner of those restaurants because no one's driving there anymore because we don't need truck drivers. And you know, there's always I've seen the. They're already making uh, robots to flip burgers and to bake pizzas and do food preparation. And so there'll be fewer job opportunities there for people. Uh, and so again, uh, as was mentioned earlier, our, our problems may not be so much technological as political. How do we handle that? What are we going to do with those people that don't have uh, other career opportunities? That was their career opportunity. We've taken that away from them uh, for the sake of efficiency and uh, uh, profit. It's a good question. I don't have an answer to that one. That will definitely be an interesting journey. Yeah. I'm hoping podcasting becomes far more profitable between now and then because <laughs> one you forgot was traffic engineers. <laughs> I think we, we should have started with the ads a long, long time ago before there were such things as like, you know, requirements and stuff. You know, 50 zillion uh, downloads per episode. Right. So one of the other areas uh, that seems to get talked a lot about is wh- when I look at engineers talking about the future of engineers and those excited about engineers, they talk about uh, entrepreneurship, uh, the idea of, you know, the excitement of running their own business. Uh, but I see that at least the numbers I've taken a look at say the number of small businesses in the United States keeps going down. There seems to be fewer and fewer small businesses opening up. Uh, the, the number of regulations, you know, small business has to uh, deal with uh, seems to be going up. And so, you know, I'm an old geezer at this point. I'm, I'm crotchety and skeptical. And so take, you know, what I say with a grain of salt. Uh, but I wonder if, if, you know, we aren't just making it too hard for those with, with good ideas to 
you know, start a new, uh, a new business and, and, uh, and run with it. I'm not saying you can't start a new business, but to really change the economy and change things ac- across a, a large region, uh, you have to have a lot of money behind that. And, and, uh, that's kind of tough to do these days. Yeah. Regulations or not, I, uh, I was never going to start my own business. I'm not that guy. <laughs> Ooh, I heard a spacey beep. What's going on? Oh, it's my phone. <laughs> uh, sorry, we're boring you. <laughs> it decides it wants. No, it decided. What does it say? Uh, my phone's telling me what I want to do, I guess. <laughs> as, as it should. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, and, and, and uh, as uh Something that we never would have expected in 94, and I'm guessing we're going to get very used to in 2040. Being told what we want to do or what we should be doing? By a computer. By a computer, yeah. Well, we've already, you know, we, everybody has the, the uh, activity bracelets, the, the fitness monitors telling them, you know, get up and move and run up and down the stairs a few times. So we're halfway there. Yeah. Whoa, ho. <laughs> So another area that uh, seems to be coming on strong that might affect uh, certain areas of engineering is is the whole uh, 3D printing thing. Uh, so I keep hearing, I mean, I don't really see it. I know that it's being used in at least low levels in manufacturing. And you two would be interesting people to talk about this because I wouldn't t- typically think of 3D printing affecting electrical design or traffic engineering. Do you guys see any realm with which 3D printing uh, starts to change or revolutionize your engineering fields. I feel like we need Chris Gamble here to defend his chip printer <laughs> idea. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't say it's not going to affect IC manufacturing. I mean, 2040, certainly not, unless there's some big breakthrough just around the corner that I don't know about. Um, it's It's very complex to manufacture integrated circuits there are a lot of people and a lot of steps and i'm not saying it can't be done but to put it into something that can fit in your desk or or on your desk or in your garage or whatever that's that's asking for a tall order Hmm. there's a big difference between being able to print some transistors in your in your garage like two or three and then being able to do something on the scale of uh you know uh, a processor or some of these digital regulators that are basically processors you know just with application-specific stuff to right. regulate your outputs and everything. So does does the so is the alternative to that something like a a low power FPGA where you just have the fabric and instead of actually printing out the device, you you just program it? Yeah, I mean, people have been talking about field programmable analog arrays for a long time now, and I think it was. Uh, Binghamton University in okay. New York. I think I remember reading about the time I was graduating college that they have, you know, some sort of field programmable analog thing. But that works if you're just doing, uh, you know, if you're not pushing the edges because inevitably something comes along and you're like, well, we need this spec and this spec, but it's not configurable at the same time. And then what do you do? Hmm. Plus, I mean, there's a, you know, the whole back end of IC design or not IC design, but IC manufacturing is the the qualification and the reliability testing where you're testing hundreds, if not thousands of parts, you know, over accelerated lifetime testing and, you know, possible destructive testing and everything, depending on the application. And that that's a lot for someone 
to just pass along to some company that isn't specialized in that sort of thing. Hmm. I mean, when you buy an IC now, you know that Texas Instruments or Intersil or Analog Devices or Linear Tech or whoever has, you know, they, they've tested every every piece of silicon gets tested by these companies. Um, yeah, the, I don't know how another company is just going to print something out on their desktop and have it be reliable. Right. You know, to, to the same standards that they're doing today, um, at least anytime soon. So you, you can see that it might be useful for prototyping, but you're suspicious that it can be used for... High, uh, for large-scale manufacturing. Yes, yes. At least as far into the future as I can see. You know, obviously barring, you know, some sort of crazy Einstein invention that comes up tomorrow and changes the way we look at the whole world around us. Um, but you can't really predict that sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, you may be able to get something in there for prototyping. Like the FPGA is, uh, you know, everybody who does custom processors and stuff I'm, you know there's fpgas in there at some point to test out some new architecture mm-hmm. idea or a little bit of something here and there but at the end of the day you need your your own chip manufactured and you need people who specialize in that sort of thing right so what about what about you adam any thoughts of how 3d printing might affect uh, your your field so I would say in traffic engineering specifically, because the reality is we don't actually build a whole lot of anything. Um, we just facilitate things getting built, um, or change. It's not like actual construction or actually manufacturing, but in other parts of, of civil engineering, um, I'd say we've been using very similar technologies for uh, a very long time. Um, you know, I would argue the concept of uh, slip form construction is a predecessor to 3d printing, maybe not quite the same way, but it's a very similar process of, of extrusion of, of additive layers um, going up or out, you know, my work typically out. Um, and actually somebody uh, a couple of years ago, 3d printed a house out of concrete. Hmm. Okay. Um, and, and, and so can you tell us more about this? What was it? Slip form construction yeah so um basically you you have a a very uh low slump concrete mix and uh you know what i'm most familiar with is is like paving and curbing and things like that and mm-hmm. you just you have a machine that um it, it it moves and adjusts and it extrudes out the the concrete in the shape you need as you go out um you know most slip formers you, you put in a uh, a rigid shoe, so if you're baking curb, you've got that curb shape shoe, so mm-hmm. you only can make that shape curb. But um, so you just drive along and lay down the curb. Yeah, huh. dump concrete in one end, curb comes out the other. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, I think I've seen videos of this sort of thing. Yeah, um, almost all concrete pavement nowadays and curb and gutter is slip formed. It it's just it's ridiculously so much easier to do than hand forming. Um, yeah. And I'm sure there's tons of videos and, uh, some of the early implementations of slip form were actually in, um, like offshore oil rig construction, vertical construction of, of monolithic concrete structures. Hmm. Um, and at least with slip form paving, there, there's a degree of like a 3d printer of you typically run a string line, although, stringless pavings coming around, which now uses things like GPS and survey points. It'll adjust the, the height of the, 
the machine to to get what you tell it it's supposed to do. Hmm. So you're telling me that at this point in time already, even pouring concrete requires a GPS signal. Not necessarily requires, but it definitely is one of the better ways, of, one of the ways of doing it. Okay. It helps. Yeah. Well, and even grading, uh, there's something called machine control, which uses, um, basically use GPS and it, it, the machine uses the GPS signals. And, and I've even seen like dozers with a GPS receiver on either end of the blade. And it can adjust that blade in order to get the shape that was designed in the computer. You still have an operator driving it around, but uh, I see something like that being, which I think in, in practice is actually quite a bit like um, 3D printing. It's not, you know, a 3D printer you sit on your desk, but it's the same concept of you plug the stuff into a computer and print it out. You print it out to a dozer instead of a 3D printer. There you go. And I admit to anybody who's actually listening who knows about this stuff, hugely oversimplified. <laughs> But, um, yeah, so I'd say we've been doing it for, you know, longer than, um, it's been popular for sure. Interesting. But you think, you think about it, um, civil projects, you build one and then you build something different. It's not like you take neighborhood cookie cutter it everywhere. Mm -hmm. So that sort of a, a manufacturing process makes more sense. You can't do like a subdivision stamp like you could for a machine part. Hmm. Interesting. And so one of the things about 3d printing, when one of the promises there is that, uh, it's a flexible means of manufacturing. That is, um, you know, if you're doing, if you're inject, mold, uh, doing injection molding, then every part looks the same, at least as similar as the molds are. Uh, or if you're doing stamping, uh, every part comes out the same, or if you're doing some sort of, uh, metal forming, you know, you're, you're doing the same part over and over. And so the 3D printing, uh, you know, one of its promises is you can do some, uh, customization. And as we move forward towards 24, uh, 2040, I see that as being something that, uh, people are going to want and can get. That is when you go and buy, you know, you go and buy a car, uh, potentially it could be a car customized for you. Or if you go and buy a golf club, it could be a, you know, people, you know, have their clubs fit, but they could, you know, actually design the entire club for, for you. I mean, just, you know, everything from top to bottom or, you know, even a coffee cup. The coffee cup is not a coffee cup you go to the store and buy. It's a coffee cup that is designed especially for you, uh, to keep the temperature at the heat you want and, uh, to be optimized for the types of drinks you drink, you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, again, we don't work, uh, none of the three of us, uh, work in the area of, you know, uh, consumer products. So I'm kind of curious, do you see any, this, with this idea of customized goods, do you see that, that 23 years from now that, uh, you might, you know, there might be a different, uh, we were talking about curbs, you know, you have a curb that's customized for the, the flow, and the the rainfall of a particular area or that there's a you know a i guess you're actually carmen i guess you're kind of there you are almost designing ic chips for particular customers needs uh not quite that specific we don't have one for you know 
uh, Apple or Lenovo or them specifically. But yeah, it's uh, a pretty niche application. You know, it's not just a dime a dozen regulator. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like it's custom. But but could you? Is there some place? Would there be in the application where you need to have a custom one for every customer? Is that too, is that too custom? Uh, <sighs> yeah. Yes and no. I mean, I guess just because you know, with some of our parts meet the Intel spec um, for providing power. I guess you could say we're designing custom chips for Intel, but it's not only Intel who buys them. It's whoever buys an Intel processor needs to power mm-hmm. it. Um, but even then, it's not like you can't reuse any of that, you know, somewhere else. You know, you can always gut out the Intel proprietary things and spin off another chip. Okay. And then you, you know, it can do 80% of what the Intel chip can do. And that's good enough for, you know, the processors put out by, uh, companies X, Y, and Z. Okay. And they, you know, they don't use Intel processors. They use some other processor, and it has similar requirements, but not as stringent or more stringent in other ways to Intel's requirements. And so, then they'll use that. Hmm. So it, it's sort of custom, but not really at the same time. I don't know if that makes any sure. sense. Well, that, I mean, it's, that's the thing about any of these things, right? You, you, you know, you have a grand idea, but. Uh, Every industry, every application, every business is going to be a little different, and so. Um, yeah, yeah. I guess a better example. I mean, may, you know, maybe it's similar to, to mine. But from what I've heard, is those uh, analog front end chips you can buy on DigiKey and stuff, where it's a whole. You know, you just hook up your sensor to the front of this chip, and you get some bits that come out, and you talk to, uh, um, you know, a micro or a processor or whatever the heck you have at the digital mm-hmm. end. And it does all the filtering and the analog computing and whatever else has to be done in this one IC. Um, a lot of those aren't designed to be very generic. It's pretty much custom to a small range of sensors from what I understand. Mm-hmm. So if it's a gas meter, you can maybe only buy gas meters from one or two companies or a gas sensor from one or two companies that's compatible with this front end. And again, only if you're not pushing the envelope. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think I think that might be a little bit better, or I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. We need someone smarter than I am on here. Well, no, you're pretty smart. I like to think so, <laughs> but I I realized I'm at a limit okay. here. <laughs> All right. I mean, I guess if you want to talk about custom silicon, you can go into uh, you know the application specific ICs like um, you know with Bitcoin mining. Mm-hmm. It started out, you could just use your general processor. Then it was, well, let's do, uh, you know, some FPGAs. And now it's, you know, if you really want to get in on Bitcoins and stuff and mine them as efficiently as possible, you need a specific Bitcoin mining processor. Right. Well, you which is you also need to be in a part of the country where power is cheap. Yes, that too. <laughs> right. So what do, what do you think, Adam? Uh, custom Custom gutters, is that a... Is that a possibility in 23 years or is that just doesn't make any sense economically? Well, it's kind of a possibility now. I mean, I, we generally pick one out of the book because it's easy and it works. There's a, oh, there's whoa, whoa, there, there's a book of gutters. Uh, yeah. This is coffee table book. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know this. Well, I mean, it's not like necessarily a, a true book, but yeah, like in our design, um, plates, we've got, various plates with various gutter shapes and, and yeah, you just, you can pick whichever one you need. And, and how does one pick a gutter shape? Um, 
I'm not a hundred percent sure on all the details of that, but uh, you got to make sure you have enough um, height to cover your flow, and then uh, you need to just kind of pick your general profile of: Do you want a, a, a drive-over style curb, or do you want more of a batter face, or um, I would say rarely a vertical face curb? And you can, yeah, you can pick, and they've got various size gutter pans and. Uh, and heights and curves to them. Um, or like in a, the inside of a roundabout, we, at least the philosophy we use in my state is we want a pretty gentle curve there. Um, because we want it to be easy for trucks to get up on top of it. Well, someplace else we'd probably use a batter face cause we don't want vehicles driving on it. And so you pick one out of the book. <laughs> so in the roundabout, you want the trucks to be able to get, up into the center of the roundabout. Yep. I guess that's yeah, there's a, preferable than crashing into the curb, I guess. Yeah. Well, in the, the middle of a modern roundabout, we have the, a raised, a single lane roundabout. Mm-hmm. We have a raised section of concrete. Right. Usually with a gentle curb. And, and that's because the trucks can't make it. Otherwise they need their back wheels to ride. They need ah, more space for their back wheels. Gotcha. So we design it for them to ride up on top of there. Um, so they can make a, make the curve. So, okay. It's called a truck apron for anyone interested. Wow. More terminology. Yeah. More terminology. Well, so we don't know exactly what uh, engineering is going to be like by 2040. I judging by this conversation, it sounds like we kind of expect it to be more of the same, right? Like same engineers. We just have different tools. And since we have better tools, we'll be expected to do more, but, uh, it's a little hard to, to tell. Uh, so let me propose this as sort of our final question uh, for the episode, and that is, well, so given what you know about engineering now and the fact that uh, there might be so many more computing tools and so many more, you know, the problems, as we've talked about, many of the po- problems are political, not technical. Uh, what do you think, we, how should we be training engineers for the world of 2040. Should we be doing anything different? Is what we're doing okay? Or is there some radical change that we should make in engineering education? Well, if I had that answer, I feel like I'd be starting my own university. Um, <laughs> no, nah, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to play it safe and just say, you know, make sure you stress the basics. Um, you know, know, make sure they know their fundamentals so they can apply the, apply them to whatever problems come their way and just, you know, instill with them a desire to learn and keep up with the times. Don't don't stagnate, right? So so let me just play devil's advocate here. So we teach, uh, at least in the classes I'm teaching, we still teach. Not surprisingly, we we talk about you know differential equations. We talk about Laplace transforms and and moving into the s domains. So we can solve you know these uh, uh, system behaviors. We talk about designing or or working with with uh, strain gauges and uh, and bridge circuits. Uh, not in the classes I teach, but in the classes we talk about, you know, uh, designing digital filters, that sort of thing. Uh, 23 years from now, is not all that going to be done by some computer? Can, can we not just plug some numbers into a program and have it punch out or spit out the, uh, the values for us? Possibly. Y- you know, I, I'd argue it's the same as today. Um, there's a lot of things that you can do with a computer, and we do have computers do. But that's not why we learn the basics. It's for that 
one time a year where the case doesn't fit the, the mold mm-hmm. where your tool doesn't work for that situation. Right. Because it was never designed to. Right. And you got to break out, you know, your, your old textbooks and figure out how to do the, figure out how to manipulate the equation to make it work. Right. So again, it's the edge case. It's the, you know, the need for the engineers is to, to be able to, uh, survey the problem and identify the edge case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Otherwise computers could do it. Well, I think, and computers will do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so what about the idea that what the engineers will become is less technical guides or technical doers and technical advisors advising, you know, advising people on how to use technology. Do we need more classes in, you know, leadership, communications, politics, to to equip engineers for that or just let them figure it out on their own. They're pretty bright people. Let them figure it out. I say let them figure it out. <laughs> You're just thinking you do not want a class on politics. I'm just thinking I don't want to, to teach any class on politics. <laughs> you know, it's the same problems we've been facing for a long time. It's not like it, this is a new problem. Right. Right. So you're, you're saying the, the, you're saying, Adam, that the problems have long been political more than they've been technical. I, I think so. Yeah. Or, or maybe not political, but human. Right. Well, I, I do see that, that as we move forward, we've got, uh, a growing population in the world. Uh, there are environmental concerns. You know, can we, can, can we keep the planet in a condition that will, uh, make life enjoyable and not miserable for us? And then we also have, increasingly uh, dependent economies where, you know, what one nation wants to do affects what many other nations want to do. And, and that sort of fights sometimes to the, uh, uh, against the political ends um, or the political battles that are being fought. So I, I do is what looking forward, you know, we're just becoming, you know, the, the world keeps getting smaller and smaller. We be, we keep becoming more and more dependent upon one another. And so I do think that as engineers, we'll, we'll have to take the role uh, more of technical guides and advisors. Uh, I just don't know where one gets smart about handling the the political issues. And quite honestly, a lot of it's going to engineering because we didn't want to handle the political issues. So uh, I'm completely absent. Good ideas here, good suggestions. I just you know I look down the I look down the path uh, 23 years from now and I see this as being a problem and I I don't know what the answer is. So. I guess what I'd say is if uh, to our listeners is if you've thought about these things and you've got some thoughts uh, and you want to share them with us or you know somebody who's uh, who's a leading thinker in this area, uh, please let us know. They can come on and correct us. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. We're at theengineeringcommons.com and there's a contact page on there and uh, fill out the form and send it to us. And uh, uh, we'd love to have someone who uh, who's a lot brighter than we are. Uh, Tell us how wrong we are. <laughs> right. We are very open to admitting we're wrong. <laughs> because we frequently are. Correct. All right. Well, what do you think, guys? Uh, enough to call it an episode? I think we could scrounge one together out of this stuff. Okay. Well, that sounds like a plan to me. All right. Okay with you, Adam? That sounds good to me. We'll get together in another couple of weeks and do another episode of the Engineering Commons. All right. Take it easy, guys. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. 
For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson.